If you have your Bibles, we're starting a new series. You can see it behind me. The amazing graphics, by the way, of Liz Klingler. Uh, yeah. Well, there's woos, but no claps. Maybe that's the new, maybe that's the new trend. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, these books were originally written back in the day as one book, so we're going to combine them. Um, we're going to start, obviously, with Ezra, but you can turn there now in your Bibles. Uh, Ezra comes after the book of Second Chronicles and before the book of Nehemiah, which may be the most unhelpful thing I could have possibly said to you right now. Um, book of Ezra. Hey, if you have a device, that's totally fine. We're, we're device happy and friendly here, but you want to click on the ESV version and that'll track you with us. So when we look at the life of the church over the past two years, um, man, there has been a ton of spiritual turbulence. We talked about that a little bit last week when we talked about forming this habit of prayer. But when we really look back at the church, um, the state of the church, um, the culture of the church, it's really been in a place of spiritual turbulence. And what happens in turbulence, if you guys have ever been on a flight and you understand this, is that things get moved around. And things that move around can sometimes break in the process. So the stewardess or the steward will come on to the loudspeaker at the end of the flight after it lands and say, hey, we experienced turbulence. So when you open up the bin, just be careful because things have shifted and some things, you know, might have broken in the process. And as the church, as people who follow Christ, we still have human tendencies. We have tendencies that are rooted in our flesh and that are rooted in just areas of doubt and unbelief. Uh, and one of our tendencies in the turbulence of our lives is to just wonder where God is in the midst of that and to doubt whether things will ever return to a place of flourishing. We sent our daughter home to Denver a couple weeks ago and right when all that stuff in Boulder was happening, all that devastation. And when you see the pictures of the fires and all of just everything that was destroyed and burned down, you, you just step back and you look and you go, how will they ever rebuild that? You know, it, it causes you to think, how, how will they ever get back to the way things were? I was watching this uh, documentary the other day on Netflix about the Six Flags theme park in New Orleans that got wiped out by Katrina. And you watch something like that and they show all these pictures of all the devastation and you look and it's just mind numbing. And you just go, how, how on earth? I mean, this was back in 05 and you think, man, they've done all of this rebuilding. But when you first see it, you wonder how, like how will they ever get this back? to the way that it was. How will they ever rebuild it? And maybe you think today, as we're coming into 22, you think, how will, how will I ever recover? Maybe you look at the state of the church. Maybe you look at our church and you say, how will we, how will we ever recover, right? There's things that we need to be recovering from. There's things that maybe you need to be recovering from. Maybe you've experienced, gosh, just a myriad of things. Maybe you've experienced some death in your family over the last couple of years. Maybe you've taken some financial hits. Um, we think about some of the division that we've encountered as a church over, over the years, some strife. Maybe there's just some tragic moments um, in your life. And you think 
man, what's going to happen? How will I ever reset? How will I ever be able to rebuild? Will things ever get back to normal? Will we come back into a place of flourishing in our lives and as, as the life of the church? Well, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah reassure us of this, that God is faithful to recover what's been lost and what's been broken. God rebuilds cities. God restores nations. God renews his church. And here's what we know, and this is what we're going to really key on this morning, key in on this morning, is that he is unconstrained from accomplishing his purposes towards these things. So as we get into this book, there's a little bit of history that I, I want to I lead you into to give you a little bit of context to what we're talking about. So when we begin in Ezra chapter 1, we got to go back a little bit to 586 B.C. when Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the people of Israel were taken into captivity because of their disobedience and their, fa- their unfaithfulness to God. And so the book of Ezra here, it begins with the Israelites returning to Jerusalem because a Persian king who had conquered Nebuchadnezzar and taken over the world um, named Cyrus had given them the green light to go back and rebuild the temple and inhabit the towns that they lived in after 70 years of exile. So imagine COVID and then add 68 years. Nobody laughs at that one, right? That's a little too close to home. But just think about that for a second. Because I know COVID has felt like 70 years of captivity, but that's because we're not used to being constrained or held back from living life however we choose, right? But COVID has really uncovered many things. One of which is that we are constrained. We are constrained people. We are constrained physically, right? You get COVID, you have to quarantine. You have to pull back. You have to hold up. You have to stay away from people. We are constrained every time we have a flight that gets canceled in our lives. Why? Because we don't control the airlines, right? So we can't get to where it is that we want to go. We're constrained every time our car breaks down. Why? because we don't have control over whether those events are going to happen or take place. And we get constrained when our dishwasher isn't working and outrageously we have to like start washing these things by hand, right? We're constrained by so many things in our life. We're also constrained relationally. We just can't control the things and the events that happen around us. Sometimes we lose a family member and it just changes the very kind of course and, and development and the, the contours and the shape of our life. We have relationships that, that end, that maybe we didn't want to end. Those are things that constrain us. We need time to recover from those things. We need time to get back to normal. So today as we open this series, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see that the Lord is the God of heaven who faces no earthly obstacles like we do in accomplishing his redemptive purposes. Let's just pick up with chapter one here in Ezra. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Verse two, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse five, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. And Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbashar, the, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. And these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So the first thing that we want to look at here that we want to just pause as we just read all of these verses that might sound a little bit confusing because we're diving right in the middle of a particular time in history with the Israelites. But the first thing we want to key in on here is that the Lord is the God of heaven. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says about the God. Now, it doesn't mean that he was a worshiper of God because some of the language he uses after he says that would indicate that he didn't necessarily worship the Lord God of heaven. He was probably polytheistic in the sense that he worshiped many gods. One of the brilliant things that Cyrus did, as well as the other kings in that era, were that they, they welcomed the people to continue to serve and to worship the, their own gods as they saw fit, as a way that they thought might allow them to flourish as a nation so as to gain some kind of loyalty and goodwill with them. So Cyrus is no different. He's saying, hey, what I would like to do is send you back to your city. I would like to send you back into your towns and I would like you to begin to rebuild the temple so that as a nation, even though you're still under captivity, even though I'm still the boss, there is going to be some sense in some measure of flourishing that you're going to experience. One of the lines here that Cyrus says right here in verse two is the Lord, the God of heaven. And the Lord is the God of heaven. None of what is happening in Ezra one, by the way, was surprising. It even says right here, Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, he had prophesied 70 years of captivity before all of this happened. He said it was going to happen. If you go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25 and 29, he talks about it. He says, this is an inevitability. This is what's going to happen to the people of Israel. So when we read that the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, 
what we actually are seeing here is another example of God being God, who keeps his promises to his people and possesses no ability to not keep his promises. God has the power to move human hearts to the movement of his heart. Remember how God hardened Pharaoh's heart when he was delivering the nation of Israel from Egypt? Well, it said that he hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to deliver his people out of slavery. And now we see that he actually stirs Cyrus's heart. He motivates, he inspires Cyrus's heart to begin the rebuilding process for his exiled people. Now look, Israel had a history. Israel had a history and historically their affection for God was just constantly given over to gods of foreign nations. And eventually God would discipline the Israelites by allowing those nations to rule over them. But God's plans are never thwarted. And even when his people disobey him, he is what Cyrus said here, the Lord, the God of heaven, who, by the way, always acts for his own glory. That's why he's so trustworthy. That's why he's so dependable. That's why he's unchanging, because he's always acting on behalf of what is going to give him most glory. And whatever gives him most glory is always what's most good for us in case I'm painting him like he's some cosmic egomaniac. So if there is a supreme being out there that we call God the Lord of heaven, and the the greatest thing for us is to have a deeper understanding and reverence and awe and love for making much of him, for making his glory bigger and more prominent than anything else in the world in our lives, then the best thing that God is going to do is exalt himself and his glory. That's what's going on all through scripture, is God making much of his glory. Isaiah 48, chapter t- uh, verse 10 says, Behold, I have refined you, God says, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, For my own sake, for my own sake, God says, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He is the Lord God of heaven. If we pause to just contemplate that right now, man, it should just fill us with something. It should fill us with equal parts, just joy, comfort, sobriety, and some good fear. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples asked about Jesus in Mark chapter four. Do you know who you're dealing with when it comes to God? That's the question for you today. Because we can exaggerate the power that other people in circumstances have in our life. Listen, to the point that they become bigger than God. It doesn't mean people don't have the power to utterly wreck you. Because they do. And they have. And some of you have all experienced that in some heartbreaking and dramatic ways. But, and there's a but, they are not the Lord the God of heaven 
who possesses the power to rebuild, restore, and renew beyond. That's hope. That's great hope. That's great comfort for us. If we consider this acknowledgement from King Cyrus, a pagan king who didn't know God, we are reminded of our own lives. We're reminded of our own vocations. We're reminded of our own families, our own town, our own state, our own nation. And we are struck with the realization that he rules over all of it. And not only rules with judgment, but he rules with grace, despite how undeserving you and I are to receive that. He rules with mercy, despite how much we deserve to be judged. He is the Lord God of heaven. He is the unconstrained God, secondly, who overcomes all earthly obstacles. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. Even the most powerful man in the world here, King Cyrus, even in our day, even the most powerful men and women on earth are used by his hands to accomplish the will of his heart. And all through scripture, we see the Lord overcoming all earthly obstacles to accomplish his will. Now listen, if you were an Israelite being held in Persian exile, it just would have been almost impossible to fathom just how God will rebuild, restore, and renew his temple when a pagan king was still ruling the world. Can you imagine being born into that? Imagine being born into captivity and all you're doing is hearing the stories from grandma and grandpa about the way things used to be when you were free, when you were back in your land near Jerusalem, when you're able to go to the temple and worship God the way that God intended. Can you imagine being born into that? 70 years. Unfortunately, I can kind of fathom 70 years right now. And I hate that I have to tell you that. But I'm, inch- I'm getting there. Some of you are already there. Some of you are so far away from that, you're just like going, yeah. I mean, nobody lives that long, Ronnie. But imagine being able to imagine that God somehow could deliver you from 70 years of exile. You might have thought, hey, until this dude is overthrown, we will never return to dwell with the Lord in the city and the land that he has given us. And so what we see in scripture is that sometimes God works by eliminating the problem. Sometimes God works by eliminating what for us are obstacles. But he also does this other thing, I would say the majority of the time which is he carves a path right through the conflict. Remember when he was delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt and they just came right up to the Red Sea and they had no boats, right? What did he do? Well, he carved a path right through it. He could have eliminated the water. I don't know. He could have dried it up. He could have built them great ships. He could have done like a thousand different things. And what he does is he carves a path right through the middle of the water so that they would not forget God's 
power and glory. So as they're walking through this dry patch of the ocean, and they see the ocean surrounding them. There was something that was going to better display God's power and glory to them as they were still kind of in the middle of it. Rather than saying, hey, go to sleep. I'm going to build this really sweet land bridge over it. And then nobody's going to have to worry about anything. No, no, no. There was still the ability for them that God gave them to look around and go, oh man, he's doing a thing here. God is doing a thing here. I mean, just imagine that scene, right? And we're given examples of this all the way through scripture. People like David, people like Daniel, remember, in the mouth of the lion's den. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego were thrown into a furnace. Remember Job, who just, man, just has the, the day to end all days when his life is just completely decimated and he loses everything. Remember Paul as he spends half of his ministry shipwrecked, half of his ministry in prison, half his ministry being beaten. All of these things show us that God draws close to us in those things, not necessarily by eliminating, but he draws close to us in our tragedy, in your illness, in your suffering, in your loss, in your abuse, in your exile. He intervenes in the most unideal of circumstances. He makes possible the impossible. He rebuilds, he restores, and renews impractical and improbable things. I mean, look at this space that we're in. I was thinking about this. Look at this space, right? It doesn't provide any income for the city. And as property values continue to rise, this could be a premium spot, right? For all kinds of stuff. For more restaurants, coffee shops, retail stores, you name it. But God decided to repurpose an old brick building in Ashland to be used for, of all things, as a house of worship. This is not God making do. This is God making all things new. That's what he does, right? It's God reclaiming what is already his. There are no earthly obstacles that can stop God from doing what he intends to do. And we see this in Ezra chapter one. Psalm 50 reminds us of this when it says, for every beast of the forest is mine, says the Lord. The cattle on a thousand hills I, this is what he says, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. It can just keep going and going and going. It's all his. So therefore, if it's all his and it's all under his sovereign control and God is faithful with everything that is under his sovereign control to accomplish his purposes, then we have a hope that goes way beyond, that goes way beyond. So why is it so important then for us to see how God used a Persian king named Cyrus to rebuild, restore, and renew the temple for a God he didn't even serve? Well, I think it's because we are so often convinced that everything is more powerful than God. I, I, I roll that way. 
I do it without thinking about it. If you were to ask me, is that more powerful than God, Ronnie? I'd say, of course not. Pass the ketchup, you know, move on to the, the next thing that we're doing, right? But I, but I live, I live, if you were to see me live, if you, if you could see the way my mind and my heart lives out the day-to-day, you might go, this dude preaches that we should be trusting in God. And man, I, I'd love to see that someday, Ronnie. That'd really be cool if, if I could see that kind of emanate from you because I've been hanging out with you and I'm not seeing that pop out a lot. Right. Surely God is not powerful enough to save my family members. Surely God is not powerful enough to redeem a bad decision that I made. Surely God is not powerful enough to get me out of this mess that I've gotten myself in due to my, due to my sin. Surely God can't make me whole again after the damage that's been done to me. And yet we see God working we see God working on behalf of this really rebellious people through a pagan king to reunite them with the land he promised them. Do do you see how close God wants to get with his people? Do you see the lengths he goes to draw near? Though they pull away, God presses in closer. When he disciplines it's always to soften hearts through testing and hardship. So these earthly obstacles that God puts in our way are never in his way, but they're there to make a way for us to see that he is unconstrained. He is the Lord God of heaven. And there is no earthly obstacle that he can't overcome to finally, our third point here, accomplish his redemptive purposes. So as God stirred Cyrus to rebuild, look at what it says. He stirred the hearts of the Israelite leaders who packed their bags and traveled to Jerusalem. Verse five, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. When God stirs in you, eventually you will respond. You can resist for a while, but for those that God stirs in their hearts, that's our theology here, for those of whom God stirs, we will respond to him. We can resist, but eventually we will respond because why? He's the Lord God of heaven who faces no earthly obstacle. And we are included in that earthly obstacle that he can't overcome. He accomplishes his purposes. We played this game when I was a kid and we would go to the beach and you'd get a bunch of buddies and you'd all hold on, you'd stand in the ocean, you'd hold onto each other's shoulders and you'd wait for the waves to come to see if they could knock you down, right? You thought you were forming this impenetrable wall and you have these massive waves And they'd come and you'd see if you could remain on two feet. And it was really funny because 10 out of 10 times we could never withstand the force of one wave. Every time we just toppled over. Because we were idiots too. Waking you up. 
Both King Cyrus and the people responded to God's stirring. That's really significant for us if we just pause on that and we reflect on that. Because it's a stirring that we hope God stirs in us. The question is, do we pray for our church to be stirred? Do we pray that God would bring a fresh wave of his spirit to stir in us that rebuilding, restoration, and renewal for our church? God has this habit of turning our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh so that when he stirs in us, we move toward him in worship. That's what's happening here in chapter one. The people are returning to Jerusalem because God opened a door and they are following his movement. And not only that, but they were bringing back the gold and silver vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar had originally stolen and placed in the house of his gods. So listen to this. If it ever looked like King Nebuchadnezzar had claimed victory all those years before, it was only temporary. It was never going to stick. It was only because God allowed it to happen. It was only because that was one of the unique ways that God had decided to refine his people. And not only does God send his people home, but they get to return with these beautiful vessels of silver and gold and other expensive wares that says used for the worship of the Lord. What does this tell us? It tells us that everything matters to God. Everything is mattering to God. What's been sad over the last two years is that we've had things sort of pop up in the life of our nation and in our cities and in the culture of our town. And what Christians have done is we back away and we say, I mean, that probably doesn't matter that much. Or we shouldn't give that a lot of attention. Or why are we even messing with that? Now, obviously, there's different levels of importance that we place on things. But what we see here is that everything, regardless of, of the status we give it or the place of prominence or importance we give it, matters to God. So he, listen, who would have thought that one of his redemptive purposes was in taking back these vessels from the house of King Nebuchadnezzar's gods and returning them to the house of the living God? Like, would you have said, oh, hold on, before we take off, we should probably grab the stuff. And yet God made it so that they weren't walking just empty-handed with their own bags, but they were bringing back the things that were reflective of the promise that God was giving them that he was going to rebuild that temple. Can you imagine the assurance that that gave them to bring back these vessels? They were mattering things to God. Because in the end, God brings back everything that's his. And everything is his. He is unconstrained in accomplishing his redemptive purposes as he stirs the hearts of both the ungodly and the godly to work his will. So here's how I want to end. I want to end with a question, which is this. Will we pray for God to stir our hearts? 
Will we pray for God to stir the hearts of Substance Church? Will we follow where God is leading us during this exile of COVID, if I can call it that? Will we stop ignoring our sin, but actually repent of our disobedience and open our eyes to the ways God wants to bring renewal to our church? Because here are some things, here are some serious truths that we know about God from this passage. Number one, and he is serious about our obedience. God is just serious about our obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. Don't put on a front, man. Don't just wear the clothes. Don't just recite the prayers. Don't just sing the songs. To obey is better than the sacrifice that you make when you're engaging in those things, is what God says. God's looking for a reformed, a rebuilt, a restored heart, a renewed place of worship inside of us that is sensitive to the spirit. And don't play the game. Don't play the game. He is serious about our obedience. He is also serious about our discipline. The Lord disciplines those he loves. I don't know why what has happened the last couple of years has happened. You don't either. Nobody knows. But it would be ignorant and arrogant to think that the Lord isn't pruning his church and saying, it's time to get serious. It's time to see who actually follows me or who has just been following a culture that feels good, that makes them feel good about themselves, that engages in some good deeds occasionally, that does a bunch of good things, that, that puts on a posture that lets their neighbors and their coworkers think that they care about the community and the nation and their town and their block, but in the end, their heart is not close to me. So I'm gonna refine them. I'm gonna pull the rug out on all those comfortable things. And we're gonna see what happens. And we have seen what happens. He is serious about our discipline. We're gonna listen. We're gonna listen. We're gonna double down on Facebook. I suggest we listen. I call us to listen. You guys hear that? Man, oh man, I should've gotten a few amens from that. It's all right. Third, he is serious about second chances. He's serious about second chances. Second chances are what God is known for. Also third and fourth chances. I mean, just keep counting. God sent Jesus, the Lord God of heaven, to be our redeemer, to rebuild, to restore, to renew us. God is not making do with his church. He is making all things new again. God is drawing us back to Jesus the same way he drew his people back to their promised land and the temple where he dwelled. Jesus is God's unconstrained way of renewing the life of our church. And maybe renewal like it did for these Israelites, it feels unfathomable to you right now. It was for them. It would have been for them. But when the Lord opened a door, they took a step through. Will we take a step through a door God may be opening for us today at Substance Church, a door to renew, to make things new, to recover what's been lost and broken. Here's the great part about that statement. We cannot do it on our own strength. That's the great thing about it. But we can pray for new opportunities 
that this warehouse provides, that the time and the talent and the treasure that exists in this room in so many unique and redemptive ways that God would use that again. And when I say again, it doesn't mean he hasn't been using it. What I'm saying is, is the Lord opening a door now for us to say, okay, let's pause and think and stop. Consider the last couple of years. What might God be doing right now as a church that we need to give careful consideration to? Will you walk with me down that road? I want to talk about some of those things tonight. We want to look at where God might be leading us as a church how he might be stirring in our hearts and how we want to just pray that he would just continue to stir. And maybe he's stirring in some of you, and I don't know that. But tonight we want to talk about some of those things and some of those ways that he might be stirring in us because he is the Lord God of heaven who faces no earthly obstacles to accomplish his redemptive purposes. He's going to do it here but man, I want my heart to be soft. I want my hands to be open. I want to be a humble leader that can see it and receive it. And I want to do it with you. Because I want to be changed by it. Can we pray? Lord, we pray for that stirring because we see how you have done it through scripture. And Lord, we're your people and we're rebellious and we're sinful like the children of Israel. So Lord, we come before you today saying, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. And Lord, would you begin that rebuilding process for us and that renewal and that restoration for us as a church and not just for us as a church here locally in Ashland, but the church, Lord, that is your church across the world, people that preach and proclaim and are being changed by the gospel. Lord, would you do that work in us? Would we be sensitive to the way the spirit is moving us? Would we be serious about the things you're serious about, like obedience and the ways in which we have been disciplined and are being disciplined by you? We also are grateful, Lord, that you don't abandon us when we abandon you. So thank you, Lord, for being ever close to us, for being ever present with us, for staying near our side when we're doing everything we can to get as far away as we can. Thank you for being unconstrained in the ways that you will work because that gives us great comfort and hope and joy. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen.